As we're continuing our series on the blessing, we're entering uh, what I think is a really critical phase uh, as we wrap this series up. Today and next Sunday, we're going to talk about it in, in a little bit different ways how to live without the blessing, life without the blessing. What, is, what do you do when you haven't received part of the blessing? If you're, if you're just here for the first time or the first time in a long time, uh, this series about, about the blessing we've called the most, the most uh, important relational issue on earth. And we just have these little scenes set up. So you can see relationships are basically built in these contexts or revealed. Sitting in a living room, at the kitchen table, relationships form there. And then, and then at different transition points in life, relationships are revealed for what they are. A kid goes off to college, a child gets married. We're wishing a young couple well who are moving to San Antonio uh, this week. Uh, a sickness in the family, uh, a, a loved one passes away, birth of a new baby. Those transition points are powerful moments because sometimes we're running so hard and fast in life, it's the few moments that we stop and start to look back. We start to reflect and say, what really matters? What's really important? What's really been going on in my life? I want to share a story with you this morning about a young man's life as we look back on it. It's a young man named Billy Blythe who grew up in a home with an alcoholic parent. His childhood was filled with instability and chaos. When Billy entered the world, he was already fatherless. He He didn't have a dad. Three months before he was born... His dad was killed in a car accident on his way to pick up his pregnant wife and bring her to their new home in Forest Park, Illinois. Shortly after Billy was born, his single mother was desperate to try to find a way to provide for for her and himself. So she left Billy with his grandparents and basically lived for the most part away from him until he was three years old. She moved to New Orleans to try to get a degree in nursing. So they were basically separated until he was three, lived with his grandparents. Billy's mother's name was Virginia. When Virginia moved back home to pick her son up, she made a bad, quick choice. She rushed into marriage, married a man who was known to be a wife abuser and an alcoholic and a gambler and a philanderer. Once when Billy was six or seven years old, Virginia was getting ready to go to visit her dying father in the hospital. And her husband got so mad at her, for some reason, he just didn't want her to go right then. But her dad was dying, and she said, I got to go. He got so mad at her, he took a gun out and shot a bullet through the wall right over the top of her head. And that night, her and her son, Billy, uh, spent the night at the neighbor's house waiting for their dad to settle down. If that was the only problem, it would have been enough. But little Billy spent a lot of nights laying awake in the bed, listening to him scream and fight and curse. Alcoholism and violence went out of control until when Billy, now listen to this, when he was 16 years old, his mother finally took him and left that man. 16, from 3 to 16 years old, 13 years of it. The divorce proceedings were really difficult on a 16-year-old boy. Because he was required to testify against his stepfather in court. He was the oldest son. And as the years of alcohol and violence had a a deep impact on his soul. 
It basically came down to this. This 16-year-old boy realized if the violence in my home is ever going to stop, I'm going to have to take the stand. I'm going to have to testify against my stepfather, the only father I've ever known, and I'm going to have to stop it. Later on, he said at 16, I had to be the dad. I forgot to tell you, Billy Bly's stepfather's name was Roger Clinton, which made Billy Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton described his childhood like this. Now listen to this. Based on everything I just told you, listen to how Bill Clinton describes his childhood. Overall, I was a pretty happy kid. I had a normal childhood. I had a good, normal life. But at times, it was really tough. I had to learn to live with the darker side of life at a fairly early period. But I wouldn't say it was a tormented childhood. I had a good life. Now, now I want to read for you for a minute a therapist assessment of Clinton's childhood. I told you his childhood. I told you what he thought about his childhood. Now let me tell you what a therapist says about his childhood. One must grasp his deep-seated level of denial. Now, now you need to let that word soak into your mind this morning. The deep-seated level of denial. When he describes a childhood of repeated episodes of abandonment, parental alcoholism, marriage of his mother, divorce, remarriage, his stepfather's death, violence directed at his mother, brother, and himself, gunshots discharged in his home as a normal life. A true description of Clinton's childhood would be chaotic and highly abnormal. As with most dysfunctional families, and I don't know... I I guess we can figure out a few reasons why this might be true. As with most dysfunctional families, Bill Clinton's family had become masters of denial. Masters of pretending what was real was not real. Masters of pretending that their family was better off than they were. Masters of pretending that everything was okay. They had learned to block out years of experiences and years of memories and to avoid conversations. They unconsciously believed that if we don't talk about it, it won't be real. If we just don't say it out loud, then it never happened. Somehow or another, when we as humans experience traumatic pain... Sometimes we can lock down into it. We don't want it to be true so bad, we think if we just don't say it, 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 won't, it won't be true. It will not have happened. Now, now, we can believe by not saying those things, they're not true. And sometimes we do it to protect public image. Now, either to save face or to deal with the pain... Or, or to protect his mother, or, or for her to protect her son, or for them to protect their home, or for them to... Sometimes they're protecting the dad's job. Who knows? But, but to protect or to pretend is, is to live in denial and to never have an honest evaluation of life and family. Now, why does all of that matter? All of that matters because without honesty... You'll never live in the blessing. Now listen to me this morning. You'll never know what it is. You'll never know how to walk in it. And you'll never know how to receive it. 
if there's not an honest evaluation on what part of it you might be missing. You won't know how to fill in the hole if you don't know where the hole is. So if you're taking notes, grab, a, grab something to write with. And, and let me give you a few ways this morning on how to live without the blessing. How do you, how do you live without the blessing? Here's the first thing. And basically, I've, I've built you into it. Honestly, evaluate your life and family. When learning to live without the blessing, one of the things you have to do is learn to be honest. One of the reasons we avoid honesty is because sometimes when something is hurt to a certain level, we, we get distance from it. And even to revisit it in our memory is to hurt again. Is to go back there. Is, is to... And, and, and we think the distance has somehow changed it. John 8.32 says, The truth will set you free. John the Baptist said, Walk in the light as he is in the light. The kingdom of darkness operates in the shadows. God and his kingdom operates in the light. Mark it down. If God goes to bring anything into the light, it's not to hurt you. It, but now listen, it may hurt to bring it to light, but it's not to harm you. Do you understand the difference? He, He's not, he's not after you. He's not uncovering things. Sometimes you may be walking through life discovering these things and it's like peeling an onion. You think you got one layer off and it's done only to realize there's another one and there's another one and there's another one. Then there's another one. But even the fact that you discovered them in layers is a sign of God's mercy. If he, if he unwound the whole thing on you at one time, it would overwhelm you. So what God does is He brings things to the light in order that He might heal them, in order that He might restore them, in order that He might bring wholeness to them. But He can't bring wholeness to them in the shadows. He can't bring wholeness to them in the dark. He's got to bring those things out in the light. What, what you may be looking for is what part of the blessing you're missing. Now, I've said all along that, we, that as we wrap this series up, we want to talk about how to live without the blessing or parts of the blessing. So remember, in the parts of the blessing we talked about, the blessing is, is passed along. The blessing is given through meaningful touch, through spoken words, through someone picturing a God-designed future... And through a commitment to make those things happen. So think about it. As you look back over your own life, think about maybe you're not missing all those. Maybe you are missing all those. In a worst case scenario, you're missing them all. Maybe you think, though, since you're not missing them all, you're not missing any of them. Look back and say, is there one or two of those that I'm missing? I can see in my own life, thank God, I never missed all of them. There's some of those I had well intact. And I thank God for them. One of the great stabilizing factors of my life is some of that blessing came down through me consistently year in and year out and year in and year out. 
And the parts that you get help you overcome the parts that you don't get. But look at those and say, is there, is there one of those pieces that, I'm, that I have somewhere missed or several of those? Home is the first building block. Now listen to this. The home is the first building block to understanding the universe. We tend to project our childhood home and the worldview we receive there onto life. We tend to think about all of life through that lens. When we start life, or the way we start life, we tend to think is normal. What did Bill Clinton say? He said, I had a normal life. You know why he thought I had a normal life? Because it was normal to him. But that doesn't mean it was normal. <laughs> that doesn't mean it was healthy. That doesn't mean it was right. Doesn't mean it was the way it should have been. Doesn't mean he wasn't missing something. So, so the pattern, especially when a family lives in a pattern, a broken pattern for generations, well, that's just the way life is. Divorce is the way life is. Abuse is the way life is. Violence is the way life is. Addiction is the way life is. Verbal abuse is the way life is. Just because it's been the way life has been for you doesn't mean it's the way that God wanted your life to be. So what you have to do is back up from those things and say, it might have been normal to me, but maybe that doesn't mean it's normal. Honestly, evaluate your family and life. Now here's the second part of that. Do some research on your family's background. I had some family members that somehow or another did this for us along the way on both sides. You know, traced the family tree and family history and, and, and some of these things. Kind of dug back in. Talk to family members. What you may learn, now listen to this, is that the patterns you see in your parents may actually run generations deep. Some of the part of the blessing that you've been missing, your family line may have been missing for generations. Maybe it didn't just crop up. Most parents who don't give the blessing or give a piece of the blessing didn't receive that piece. Try to look beyond your parents' actions and look into their history. Let me tell you what happens when, when that happens. You start having a whole lot more compassion for them. Because you realize what they lived through. Hey, how many of you took your parents for granted till you had kids? And then you went... How did they do this? How did they not murder one of us? I'm surprised we all made it out. I'm telling you, as we look along the way, Stacy and I have said to ourselves many times, for those of you who don't know, she was raised with a, um, a crippled mother. And as we look at how we're trying to raise our kids, we go, how did her dad ever raise two girls with a crippled wife by himself? We're like with two, and we feel surrounded sometimes, outnumbered. Thank God we don't vote in our house. Be, be out, out of business. I remember um, my greatest conflict with my dad. I was home from college, some break, and uh, some, I don't even remember why. He and I got in some kind of a... We'd had, we'd had a... Uh, Chaotic home, uh, filled with a lot of frustration and anger and outrage, and and he and I had just had just come to a disagreement on something. I don't remember why, and and I don't remember why, but I remember just saying, you know what, 
I'm not doing this anymore. I'm not backing down this time. And I can remember just going back at him and saying, well, and I don't even remember what the thing was. But something happened. Later, my mom said to me, I, I knew he was going to hit you. I knew he was going to hit you. And I, and I told her, I thought he was too. But I can remember standing in there, and I can remember seeing something happen that I only saw, I think, one other time in my life. I saw him just crumble and break. And he started to cry. He turned his back to me. And he said, I never, I never meant any of this. And I can remember putting my arms around him from the back and hugging him. And I remember saying, I love you. I'm sorry. And that day, my view of my dad began to change. And my compassion for him started to grow. And I realized that day that the chaos that he had inflicted in our family was an overflow of his own life. And he didn't really know how to deal with it all the time. And that day, something I didn't expect started to happen. That day, I started to heal. That day, I started to heal. Here's the third thing. Understand the power. Now, don't, don't, don't creep out on me. Don't, don't tune me out. Understand the power of a curse. Now, don't, don't flip out. Let me tell you what the Hebrew word for curse means. To consider something of little value or worth. The Hebrew word for curse means to consider something of little value or worth. Like the, the language describes like a mist. It's something so, uh, such little weight that it can easily just be brushed aside. Some of you have been so, shown such little value. Some of you have been spoken to talked to, treated like, addressed in such a way, neglected in such a way that you've been treated at times or in ways like you weren't worth very much. Well, the Old Testament would call that a curse. The Old Testament would, would call... Now, we think of it as like a witch doctor taking a needle and pushing a pin through the head of a doll that looks like us. Can, can I tell you what I honestly believe? I, I'm not saying Satan doesn't entertain uh, witchcraft and he's not involved. I, I'm not saying that. But can I tell you where I think Satan's done more damage than putting pins through the head of a doll? It's in talking people into valuing you too little. That's where I think Satan's done a lot more damage. Somehow convincing people that you weren't worth as much as he said you're worth. Somehow saying, you're not worth the death of my son Jesus. That's where I think that the enemy has done by far more damage. Let me tell you when the blessing happens. The blessing happens 
when, when your parents, when my parents, the blessing happens when you as parents and we as parents, the blessing happens when we agree with God about His value on those under us and we pass it to them. When we say, you are just as valuable as God said you were. And I'm going to speak that to you, and I'm going to act that toward you, and I'm going to touch you with that, and I'm going to speak a future over your life, and I see that God has plans for you, and I, I am going to minister that to you every way I can, because God said you're worth it. That's a blessing. God's will is for you to be blessed. From Genesis to Revelation, Satan's will is for you to be cursed. Satan wants you to live the same life, incidentally, that he lives. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, after disobeying God and sinning against Him, they had their eyes open, and the Bible said they realized they were uncovered. Can I tell you what happened? They moved from blessed to cursed. They moved from realizing that they had been covered by the blessing of God, and all of a sudden the blanket was taken away, and they said, What happened? What happened? We're uncovered. The enemy said, that's what I always wanted. Right there. That's what I always wanted to show you. God's will is to cover us. Now listen to this. You might want to write this down if you've ever dealt with the enemy. God's will is to cover us. The enemy's desire is to exploit us in the areas we're uncovered. Now think about it for a minute. Satan looks for any weakness, any vulnerability, any opportunity to enslave us, to exploit us, to control us for years. Maybe even for generations. Paul the Apostle said, don't even give him a foothold. If you'll honestly evaluate your life, I guarantee you that the area in your life of greatest temptation and strongest temptation and most consistent temptation comes in the areas that you were not blessed. The areas that you were uncovered in, the areas that you were not covered by uh, by, by a, a godly parental family blessing, those are the areas that you struggle with now. That's not a coincidence. Because the enemy will target every area that doesn't come up under the blanket of God. Every area that you you think you have that foot stuck out for ventilation. But the enemy will see that and say, Hmm, that looks like fair game to me. That looks like an area that I could get inside. That looks like an area that I could penetrate. Three things happen when, when, when we're not blessed, when we haven't walked in that blessing. We're talking about living what life is like without the blessing. Psychologists, people who study these things, have found a pattern. They see these three things reoccurring over and over and over and over and over and over in people who are not blessed, who are not living under the blessing. The first thing is hopelessness. Just no internal motivation, no internal drive, no internal hope or optimism that anything is ever, ever, ever going to help. Hopelessness, dreariness, 
discouragement. No, no, inner, no, no inner strength. Because the blessing is missing. The security of the blessing is missing. So when you pull, when you pull the wall off the back, all, all of that drains out. There's not that backstop. There's not that safety net. There's not that security blanket to say, I love you. I bless you. You are blessed. When people don't live under the blessing, when they don't receive the blessing, when they don't know how to walk in the blessing, even when they haven't received it, hopelessness sets in. The other thing is uh, a sense that there's no, no power, no ability in their life to change their circumstances. Out of control. Do you want to know where most disorders in life come from? They, come, they strike in the area that was vulnerable in childhood where there was no blessing and, and it continues, continues to walk in it. Eating disorders and sexual disorders and, and uh, emotional issues. So many of these things have been grafted in the, the spirit of the young and, and when a blessing was missing and that child has never been taught how to walk in the God-given blessing no matter, no matter what they were given on earth. And so, and so that has set deep inside their soul and caused a hopeless. You see how the enemy does this? Does this sound like the enemy to you in the shadows? Hopelessness and no, no, no ability, no power to change the situation. And let me tell you what that leads to. And it's the ultimate place that Satan always wants to take all of us. Loneliness. Hopelessness. No ability to change. Nobody's ever gone through what I'm going through. Nobody's ever felt this before. It's Elijah sitting under a tree saying, nobody else serves you but me. The enemy, the enemy, God's will for us is community. The body of Jesus, the community of faith, the family of God. You are interconnected and intertwined in that life-giving. John 15 calls it a vine. A living vine that flows life to you and me. But the enemy wants to trick us into believing that we are somehow separated from that and alone. And no one's ever experienced this. That's how, that's how the enemy tried to prey on Jesus in the desert. He tried to tempt him with those things. God's left you. That's what he told Adam and Eve in the garden. Did God really say that to you? God didn't really say that. He doesn't mean that. He's not even around. He doesn't even hear us. He doesn't know. You ever heard those voices come to you? What the enemy... Now listen to this. What begins in secret... The sins and the darkness that starts in secret... Are maintained by silence. And that silence pushes us to live in the shadows and to believe that we're all alone. In darkness, I look like I'm all alone. In light, I might be exposed, but at least in the light of Jesus, I know I'm not standing here by myself. Because God has set us in. Psalm says, God has set us in a family. Numbers chapter 22. I want you to turn there with me in your Bible. Numbers chapter 22. I want to ask Pastor Micah to come. There's an interesting story in Numbers 22, 4 through 7. 
Numbers 22, 4 through 7. The Moabites said to the elders of Midian, This horde is going to lick up everything around us as an ox licks up the grass of the field. So Balak, son of Zippor, that's a, that's a strange name, isn't it? Who was king of Moab at the time. Listen to this. Sent messengers to summon Balaam, son of Beor. Who was Balaam? Who was at Pethor near the river in his native land. Balak said, a people has come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the land and have settled next to me. Now come and put a curse on these people because they're too powerful for me. Perhaps then I will be able to defeat them and drive them out of the country. For I know that those you bless are blessed and those you curse are cursed. The elders of Moab and Midian left, taking with them the fee for divination. He would charge to curse people. When they came to Balaam, they told him what Balak had said. This is an interesting story about when the Moabites moved. Actually, the Israelites camped right up next to the Moabites. And it, and it, it, it threatened them. And so what they decided to do is they decided they were going to hire a, a warlock to speak a curse on Israel because there, there, there are too many of them. They're overwhelming them. They're scaring them. So the king of, of Moab hired Balaam to curse Israel. And then if you read through Numbers 22, 23, 24... You'll see how that story kind of rocks on for about four chapters. And you see this back and forth. And that's where Balaam's donkey speaks. And you see this whole story kind of rock on back and forth. But as that story wrapped up, look at, look at Deuteronomy chapter 23. I want to show you how Moses summarizes the story when Moab, the king of Moab... Hired a warlock to curse Israel. This is a verse that you ought to write down. This is a verse that you ought to put on your refrigerator. This is a verse that you ought to stamp on your forehead. This is a verse that you ought to burn deep inside your soul. Because it reveals, looking back, summarizing generations of history. God's will not only for Israel, but God's will for you and I. Deuteronomy 23, 5, when Moses was thinking back about the story, he said, however, he was laying down the regulations of the law. And he was telling Israel how you need to stay with God. And he said, however, the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam, but turn the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loves you. He turned the curse into a blessing because God loves you. Can I tell you something? There are people in this room this morning. You've received a curse from somebody. You've re- you have been valued too little. But what God will do if you'll give it to Him is He'll turn that curse into a blessing. And you know why He'll do it? Because He loves you. Because He loves you. Down deep in the soul of God... He absolutely, completely, and totally loves you. I'm going to ask you to stand. 
I want to end different this morning. It's Father's Day. And Jesus said that, that in the last days, He talks about coming in the spirit of Elijah and turning the heart of the Father back toward the children. So I want to do something this morning. Wherever you are in this room, just going to end a little different. I'm going to ask every dad if you would step out from where you are and just come and join me right here in the front. I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to ask you to do anything strange. I just want to pray for you. I want every dad, if you would come and find your place here. And then I want to ask you something. You may be a young man here who says, I'm missing part of the blessing. And I don't want that to carry over in, into my years as a dad. I want you to come right now too. Maybe you're not a dad. But you say, I, I'm a young man. I'm going to be a dad one day. And I don't want, I don't want what I might be missing to be missing out. Can I, can I tell you that was me as a young man? I, I didn't know how to ask God with these words, but I asked him in different ways. And he heard my heart. And he healed. Can, can I tell everyone here that's not standing here at the front? We need these guys. We, we need these guys. We need you. We need your love. We need your stability. We need your mind. We need your heart. We need your godliness. Jesus has always had a plan for revival. And I'll tell you what it is. It's to turn the hearts of the Father back to their children. That's always been His plan. Where you are now, it'll get crowded. But wife, son, daughter, mom, would you kind of press in behind these guys as much as you could? Guys, come on all the way to the steps. And would you just put your hands on their back? And I want to tell you something today. We need you. Your family needs you. Your home needs you. Your neighborhood needs you. Your church needs you. Shelby County needs you. God knew what he was doing when he made the home. You've got to believe that. And God's will for the home is for it to be blessed. And I, I want every one of you men to look at me for a second. I don't care what anyone's ever told you. I want to say to you today, you are a blessed man. God loves you and he wants to bless you. Inside the soul of every man is the question, when the pressure comes on, do I have what it takes to be what I'm supposed to be? And I'm telling you on the authority of God's word, in Jesus' name, you do. In Jesus' name, you will be everything God wants you to be. Rest in it. With, with your hands on these guys' back, I want you to start to pray a blessing on these men. Man, I'm going to pray a blessing over you. Lord, I thank you for the men in this room. I thank you for the part of God that we would only know if there were men. 
Lord, I thank you for the soul of a man that you've made as it is. God, I pray that this morning as we lay hands, as we pray, as we bless, God, I pray that you would heal this morning. Lord, the scars and the wounds that have flowed and cut and gashed. Lord, the times when these men have been told that they're less than what you've said they are. Lord, the times that these men have been undervalued. Lord, I pray a blessing on them. Lord, I pray that they may understand how wide and how deep and how broad is the love of Christ. Lord, I pray that they would understand that we'll never be separated from your love, nor neither height, nor life, nor death, nor demon, nor angel, nor things that have been, nor things that are to come will ever separate us from the love of Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would bless these men. Lord, I pray that you would, may you give them health, May you give them long life. May you give them joy in a relationship with you. May you give them joy in their family. May you give them joy in their marriage. Lord, may you give them fruitfulness at work. May you make them effective on the job. Lord, may these men rise as the frontline producers at their workplace. Lord, may they find more value in you than they find in their performance. God, I pray that you would grant the mind of every man here. I speak over them, Lord, wisdom. Make them wise in relationship. Lord, crown them with a wisdom where they know how to relate to their wife. They know how to relate to their children. They know how to relate to other men. Lord, make them wise. Make them whole. Lord, bless them with favor. Lord, for those who are struggling this morning, out of a job, looking for a job, in between jobs, for the right job. God, I pray you are Jehovah Jireh. You're our provider. And we pray your blessing on these men this morning. Lord, I pray this morning that these men would receive the respect that their soul needs. God, I pray that you'd wrap around these men wives and children. And, and other friends who would communicate re- the respect that the soul of every man needs. Lord, we lift these men up today. We respect them. We bless them. We pray your favor and life and health and joy and strength and intimacy with you. Lord, may your greatest dreams be theirs. Lord, may your greatest plans come to pass over their life. No matter what the enemy's taken. Lord, you're going to add back more now. In Jesus' mighty name. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name.